Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. It's January 10th, 2018, and my name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. This is episode number 81 of the EdTech Situation Room, and joining me as always is Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you this fine evening? I am well and quite impressed at how quickly that 2018 just rolled off the tongue as if you'd been doing it for months. So I'm happy to come to you all from Oklahoma City, where we had cold weather and then we got warm again up to 50s and 60s. And then we're all bracing for the cold. Jason, you'll just laugh. I think I think the high may be lower than freezing on Saturday. So we're just we're really yeah bracing for the crippling cold. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School and am excited to not only be here, but also doing a lot more with digital citizenship, which is a common theme that we talk about. And I'm excited that at our school, we've got our initiative moving forward, and we may have a chance to share a little bit about that later in the show. But, ah, so much security to talk about. Jason, where will we begin? Well, I think I want to circle back on last week's breaking news story about the meltdown and, and Spectre uh, vulnerabilities in basically every computer device made in the last 25 years. And the story keeps having interesting onion peels back, peelbacks of this as, first of all, there seems to be a lot of hand-wringing around if there should be fault here or if there's something that's not being told. And the first article we'll refer you to, and by the way, you can get all of our show notes, links to all the articles we've to at our website at techsr.com where we have a Google Doc that has all the information that helps us prep for our show. But one of the things that is starting to happen now is as we start to talk about the impacts of the meltdown inspector uh, vulnerability, I guess is the best way of putting it, in basically every digital device that exists. The only digital device I know that's that's universally accepted from this, by the way, is the Raspberry Pi appears to not be impacted by the Spectre and the Meltdown vulnerability. So for the record, the Gary Steger vision of, you know, don't do a Chromebook, you know, let, let's all let's all get a Raspberry Pi and then we'll be secure. So Gary is is ushering in a new era of security for us. I'm tongue in cheek. I think Gary is great. Um, we I, I did. Uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting because there's some some cool stuff you can do with that, but certainly not the heavy lifting computing that we probably, re- relatively speaking, have to do on a daily basis. Right. Well, and unfortunately, I think that, that like many things, it's not the crime sometimes that's the issue. It's the cover-up that's the problem. And uh, the Verge article, which is in, in, entitled Intel Needs to Come Clean About Meltdown Inspector, is uh, basically calling out all computer manufacturers and chip manufacturers, for that matter, that they need to be at least a little more proactive about releasing communication related to these particular vulnerabilities, which, again, impact the vast majority of technology platforms that have been in use over the last 20 years. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this is that um, I'm convinced based on my reading of the media that most end users are not likely to be impacted by this. This is going to be more or less a server issue or an infrastructure issue more than anything else. But the fact that there can be a uh, can be a vulnerability that impacts basically all hardware created in two decades is something we should at least take pause about. And ignoring that kind of uh, cover up, need to be more open about the discussion piece of this conversation. There's starting to become some very interesting uh, articles about both the patching of this and also which 
particular hardware devices will actually get patched because one of the, the interesting impacts of this particular situation is that a lot of computers will continue to have this vulnerability because the hardware is unlikely to get updated. So I kind of want to separate those issues into two for a moment and first talk about a really great article that came from um, The the Verge, which apparently is my go-to source for everything, yesterday's edition of The Verge. Microsoft is announcing that they suspect that anything older than two to three years old in computer hardware could face significant and noticeable slowdowns when the software patches are released in coming weeks and months. And so for me, um, as an example of this, my favorite carry computer that's not kind of a fancier new computer is a um, it's a five now a five-year-old Lenovo X230 laptop. And that is running Windows 10. It's a it's a it's a wonderful machine. It's small and compact and has great battery life, but it's something I picked up for under $200 used uh, about a year ago, and it was kind of uh, blemished, and it clearly had been used, but it's also a laptop I don't mind dropping or, or having stolen. Uh, it's password protected, which means my data is protected even if the laptop disappears. That laptop is old enough, even though it runs very speedily on Windows 10 in 2018, that that laptop could be slowed down as much as some people suspect 30% slowdown after Microsoft implements their particular fix for the um, the meltdown vulnerability. And right now, it appears the computers that were created, uh, I'm sorry, released 2015 and before, and that's not that all that long ago, um, may be significantly slowed down when Windows rolls out patches for that. So um, there's no word yet. Mac was actually the, Apple was the earliest manufacturer that had released information to suggest that their fixes for Spectre and, and um, Meltdown might slow down down those particular platforms, but now both Windows and the folks at Apple, and then there's more hazy information related to Chrome, the Chrome operating system, and that's something I want to talk about separately in a moment, but this could be a big deal, and particularly for schools that probably rely on long replacement cycles, they may have very old PCs sitting in their library, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old PCs that will experience a massive slowdown when these needed updates are rolled out. So first, as an IT director, Wes, do you expect there to be uh, an issue in your ecosystem? Absolutely. And I think that this is one of the most important things as directors of technology and folks involved in technology that we're ready to answer and to explain and to talk about our strategy for. I want to begin my response by saying, similarly to last week, we have not, I have not read or seen anything about an exploit in the wild. In other words, somebody who's been hacked. I mean, generally on the show, we're not talking about theoretical vulnerabilities. We're talking about WannaCry. We're talking about, you know, zombie botnets, which what was the, the really big one that, um, you know, the Internet of Things, the stuff that, you know, denial of service attacks. We're talking about real, and, and not to say this is real, but there's a difference between an identified vulnerability that could be exploited and exp- uh, Mirai botnet. That was the, the biggest denial of service attack ever, right? That happened last year and brought, you know, major internet services, um, t- you know, to, to a crawl and then, and then a stop for a while. So we need to be reminding people because when, it, whenever we talk about security stuff, you know, we have the risk of the sky is falling and, and being perceived as chicken little. And so this is, 
it appears, unprecedented in terms of the scope and who is affected. But it isn't unprecedented at this point in terms of, hey, this took down hospitals in the UK who had people on life support or this locked people out of their hotels, you know, with the, with the ransomware, et cetera. So that's point number one. Um, point number two is that, uh, you know, I was listening even tonight right before the show on, on the podcast, on my podcatcher of choice, uh, pocket cast to the latest security now podcast. And I went ahead and put a link to that in the show notes and under your meltdown inspector issues, <laughs> I dropped down a link, which I think is one of the most huge, just like, Oh my gosh, security links that we've talked about on the show. And this is a ZDNet article from today, January 10th, 2018. Microsoft, no more Windows patches at all if your AV clashes with our meltdown fix. And so I literally just, you know, heard, um, uh, Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson on Security Now, you know, breaking this down. And, and that is Security Now, one of the best podcasts I think we can listen to as, as people involved in technology because it really, you know, dives deep into the weeds, deeper than Jason and I are, are going to get, um, I think. Maybe not into the tin hat stuff, but uh, into some of the security stuff. And uh, to try to br- briefly summarize this, we've talked about on the show how antivirus um, – you know, people really disagree about what you should run and what you should do. There are folks saying, hey, I think we just need to have clean systems, but really not run much. You know, we've talked on the show about Kaspersky and the issues there. It was a, a link last week that it really can open you up to vulnerabilities. This is something that's affected the security community in the United States because if you have this running on your machine, you know, people can and evidently have, according to Israeli sources, you know, changed the definitions and been able to grab all the TSI, you know, secret, you know, communications and upload them, et cetera. So what is going on with antivirus software in some cases is it is making changes to the core kernel, the, the operating systems, you know, most basic level of, of code. And in some cases, it's making changes that are not approved nor desired by the operating system manufacturer, like Microsoft, like Apple. And so what Microsoft has announced and, and is doing right now is that if you're running Windows Defender or Windows Security Essentials, you're fine. Because in order to get the new patch for January 2018 that fixes and addresses Meltdown Inspector, you have to have a registry key changed on your machine that says, I'm running compatible AV. And if you don't have that registry key changed, your computer can't download the update. Now, let's also say this is a very dynamic situation. And, you know, I have not yet, just to speak personally, I've not emailed something out to our faculty. I'm going to, I think, send something out before the end of this week, which gives me two days, <clears throat> in consultation with, you know, others on our team. Um, our head of school actually had emailed, you know, a couple of us right away saying, hey, is this going to affect us? And so, um, you know, I mentioned last week on the show, this is a challenge for our patch strategy, right? Are we regularly pushing out patches and ver- and validating that these patches have been uh, pushed out. And so we've, we need to answer the advice for folks, you know, should I upgrade and, and should I patch um, what they're saying on security now? And others have, have said too, there's some is we're, we, we needed, we can talk about the processing implications of this in terms of a, of a speed hit because 
not to pretend like I understand everything here, but computers have physical memory and they have virtual memory. So I'm thinking back to the pre-iOS 10 days when you actually manage that on your iOS 9 and 8 and 7 devices. So, you know, for those of you Mac geeks, I, I think I go back to probably, you know, Mac OS 6. Whatever, 7.53. I remember installing all these updates. You got TCP. You could install the, install the internet. It was exciting. Anyway, I'm probably boring, you know, most of the, of the listeners. So I'll stop. But computers have virtual memory and physical memory. And again, drawing on the wonderful security now guys, you know, they said this has been an essential part of processor development when we look at Moore's law and how things have sped up because physical memory is just not enough. And so the vulnerability that, that is occurring here has to do with the, um, the uh, interchange of information between the kernel and between the user and, and basically, uh, you know, things talking back and forth. So that's a long way of saying this is not something we can ignore. Um, on the specific article I just shared, that's huge, right? Because, for instance, on our campus, we run Kaspersky. We're in the, like, I think, fourth year of a five-year contract, you know, to have Kaspersky on every Windows and Mac device that we have on campus. If Kaspersky does not comply with Microsoft, and I think I, you know, understand this from Microsoft, right? If if your antivirus is destabilizing the OS, I mean, that will blue screen your machine. And so this, to my knowledge, I don't know that they've done this before. It's kind of unprecedented because basically Microsoft is, is creating a whitelist of AV uh, software that is legit that you can use. And if you don't use it, you can't get an update and your machine will remain vulnerable. And that is basically like saying, you know, I mean, I don't even know if I have the right metaphor for that, but like you don't do that today. You don't not patch your computer and especially, you know, when it comes to servers, um, but even just client, you know, endpoints. So I have, uh, you know, cha- you know, advanced in, in my thinking about this. I think this is also a critical case of where we've all got to be connected and be learning together, right? Here on the EdTech Situation Room, we're trying to, you know, put an EdTech and education lens on this kind of news and what this means for us. And so um, I have really enjoyed a Google Plus community, and I can drop the link in for uh, Google uh G Suite user admins for education. Uh, it's really, it's, it's great. There's over, I think, five or 6,000 users now. And so, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you're watching this podcast, you're connected. We need to continue to, you know, wave that torch and blow that horn, encouraging folks to be connected to, to follow this kind of stuff because I don't care where you went to school and what your initials are. And actually, you know, Jason is getting closer to the extra initials. Let's not say they don't matter. They do. They open up doors. I can, you know, witness to that. But I'm just, I'm, I'm saying that no matter what, you know, Jason or I studied and, and did for uh, doctoral work and dissertations, it didn't, you know, teach us what we need to do today on our personal machines, in our offices, at our schools. The, these answers are coming from the community, and it's important to to have trusted, you know, sources that you can go to and to filter. And hopefully, you know. We're, hope, we're helping in some small way serve that need for you. So, Jason, that was probably the longest single diatribe I've, I've shared on this. Um, I, you know, where are you think? What are you thinking about personally for you know your organization and then the devices? I mean, you've already said you might have to roll, you know get rid of some of those older PCs. Beyond that, do you guys? have a strategy and has the university responded? Cause that's interesting sure. too, right? Because they've got, you know, way more PCs than either 
or of us are responsible for to take care of. Right. Well, so to answer the first question, organizationally, we really only manage about 15 total machines because all of our workforce is distributed and we do not provide hardware. So that's that's been, a, 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 you know, a bit of a blessing for us because we're able to then focus just on our internal machines. And so what I did last week was uh, the minute it came out and uh, we are, I'd say, about 80 percent Windows, 10 percent Mac. Uh, well, with 15 machines, I should just tell you the number. It's it's about 10 or so PCs. It's a, a, a handful of Chrome devices. And then it's a couple of Apple devices. And so the Apple device patches apparently aren't released yet. Windows is is, is starting to slowly roll out and Chrome OS will auto update with, I think it's version 64 has the uh, patches available to for software mitigations for these particular vulnerabilities. And so uh, it was easy for me as the de facto tech director of our organization to just say, hey, everyone, check your updates every day and install them when you get them and we'll go from there. Now, the university is an interesting question because I'm an end user as part of the university. I'm in no way part of the administration of technology on the University of Montana campus, a very large campus with thousands of students and and, and thousands of, of, of adult employees and faculty members. And I haven't heard anything yet about this particular vulnerability. And I'm assuming they're going to push out updates, although uh, the Windows machines managed by the University of Montana uh, don't, uh, they usually stay one or two versions back of Windows 10. And my understanding is that hasn't changed recently. So I'm assuming they'll, they'll push forward with newer additions to make sure that that vulnerability is patched. But, you know, as a small organization, we also have responded in that way. But the the way I've had to respond to this was also get a hold of our vendors and make sure that they had a plan in place to patch the servers of the services they delivered to us. We don't manage any servers in MTBA. We go externally for all of that, cloud-based everything. And while I was confident that all of our vendors had a plan to deal with these vulnerabilities, I felt like I needed to do due diligence to make sure that I understood what that plan was on the very real chance that it impacted any of our end users or ended up with some sort of data theft or loss. As it turned out, every vendor I contacted had either put in place any on those service or servers or have a plan in the next week or two to do that. And so that's definitely an important part of this process. Now, personally, I it's complex because as I've talked about here in the past, I, I use a lot of different laptops and desktop machines. And I do like taking older hardware and giving it new life again with a... Um, hold on. That's, that's my mom calling, by the way. So in case you were curious, um, the... Um, the um, with my machines, I am a little worried about older Windows machines uh, that have those pro that, that released before 2015, the ones I talked about a little bit earlier, and um, I, I think they just won't be as useful to me anymore, depending on the slowdown for that. But the interesting thing for me, and there's a couple articles in our show notes uh, related to this, the two things that I'm worried about is first Chromebooks. Um, Chrome is going to auto-update to, to put releases, but there are a couple articles that I will refer you to one of them is an article um, from Android Police, and then it refers to a page on the Chromium.org site that talks about which Chromebooks are vulnerable, which ones will receive updates, and when they will receive updates. And very interestingly to me, my primary Chromebook now is a used uh, Chromebook Pixel 2015. It's now three-year-old Chromebook Pixel. It's a their premium release, and I bought it substantially cheaper than when it was released in, in 2015. Used 
used at the end of last year, and this will be patched, but it's not on the immediate patch list, which I thought was very interesting that this platform would need to wait before they patched it. Um, I have other Chromebooks that are already patched, and I have other uh, access to others that are not part of the vulnerability that was announced uh, uh, as part of the uh, initial release of this information last week. And that's just very interesting to me that Google is not taking its own hardware at three years old and five years old, that's the 2013 Chromebook Pixel and the 2015 Chromebook Pixel, and automatically patching those. And I don't know how to, what to think of that. I don't think that this is a massive risk for end users, right? But at the same time, you know, I, I trade in student data, right? That's a, a, a good percentage of my job is dealing with student data. And I feel like that I need to perhaps defer to devices that I know are patched so that I can make sure that that student data is safe. And it's likely the way I'm going to approach that personally. Well, this is the first thing I've heard like this, a security vulnerability like this, which is which is hardware, right? I mean, this isn't just, hey, we, we have a backdoor, we have, you know, some kind of, of software change that we need. It's, it's the actual hardware. So I think that there's a whole lot of us, you know, not sure what to do, because even if you said, hey, we've got to replace all our computers, those computers are not available on the market today, you know, that I know of that are, are completely you know, fixed from this or, or have this completely yeah. repaired. So I think that um, oftentimes when it does come to operating system updates at school, uh, and we're, I'm sure not alone in this, I mean, we're not pushing the bleeding edge to tell everybody, hey, immediately go install that uh, on a very practical level. Oftentimes it can break printers, you know, on the Mac side when, when you've got a new major operating system release, <clears throat> just depending upon what kind of network printers people are connected to. So I think that is thinking aloud here on this probably the the recommendation we'll have i like that idea of reaching out to the vendors because that's a really good thing i mean our administration knows this and we talk about it i mean we've moved from 13 or 14 servers like five years ago before my time i'm my third year right now uh, <clears throat> to about four you know because we're so in the cloud as far as google in terms of our student information system you know in terms of the vast amount of, of data so that really does shift the responsibility some of that on the server side to our vendors. And so I like the idea of, of finding out what their, you know, mitigation and, and, and ways of, of addressing it are. But, you know, on a personal level, I think with your phone, I've talked to some users who have installed patches, for instance, on their iPhone, have noticed a slowdown and, you know, noticed that. Uh, I think I will say kind of wait and see. Again, we haven't heard of a single breach where someone has lost data, they've had identity theft, they've had any kind of consequence to this yet. And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, I guess the, if everybody waits, then then the vulnerability is there for it to be exploited. But because we're talking about performance hits and also because we're talking about, you know, patches that have been rushed and this Microsoft thing, Jason, I don't know if you've, if we've ever seen something like that, but for Microsoft to say, Hey, you know, you're not getting any more updates ever unless you run, you know, these different AV, you know, solutions that we approve. That's a that's a huge shift. We've we've, to my knowledge, never seen that before. Right. And so I think that we're OK to be cautiously waiting. And, um, you know, we, we also haven't seen something where the patch comes out and it breaks. Right. I mean, Apple's kind of done that on some of their 
you know, recent iOS releases that have just been not great in the, in the point O version. And you've wanted to wait to the point one or the point two or something like that to, right. to have some of those glitches worked out. But right. it is, it is a big deal. It's not something that we can ignore. I'll, I'll say this too. If we're starting to lose anybody, I mean, we're not going to just talk about this exclusively. There's, there's as always on edtechsr.com slash links, you'll find a wealth of things that. We never have time to talk about all of them. We are going to to get to some other articles, but I think it's appropriate uh, that we start with this, and you know, we talk about it as we usually do on a on a school enterprise level, and then thinking about a personal level. You know, what is what is the impact? Yep. And I'm going to add one other piece here, just because it's an interesting article. There was a great article from nine to five uh, nine to five Google dot com today that talked about which uh, mobile phones will be getting up. Dates for this, and this is a little more complex because I do feel like outside of the geekosphere of which Wes and I live, that people tend to hold on their phones longer than 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 people that are switching them out pretty regularly. Right? As an example of this, my mom's rocking a an iPhone five, uh, an iPhone five, and my dad. No, I'm sorry, an iPhone five S, and my dad is rocking a Moto X phone, and there's a great chart on that particular article, again, at our website, at techsr.com, that talks about which phones will be getting updates to deal with these vulnerabilities, and it's really just the last couple of years of phones that are going to do that, and I happen to know from both personal use and from others that use those phones that there's a number of phones listed here on these particular um on this particular list that will be confirmed not receiving updates that are otherwise very functional phones even in 2018. An example, the HTC One M7 phone is a phone that I know two people that actively use. It's a five-year-old phone. Both these users have replaced the battery, but other than that, and it runs a, a you know a three or four-year-old operating system, and yet it's still a go-to phone for them, and it's working just fine. Up until very recently, I was using a Galaxy Note 4, which is not going to get, receive an update um, to this particular vulnerability. And the other complexity is, particularly for Android users, distinct from Apple users, that Android users tend to receive these patches months after release by Google to manufacturers, which means that there could be a lot of phones that will be updated but temporarily in the wild, they don't have the recent updates installed. And so, again, I, I, we are certainly not chicken little people here at, at the podcast. I don't think Wes and I, I tend to overly panic about things. My guess is is this too shall pass, right? That there, uh, there's a lot, much ado about nothing because the impact to end users is likely going to be relatively small. But this risk is extraordinary. And I don't think it's, it's too much to say that even as a casual electronics consumer, you're going to want to keep an eye on this story. And if I could offer a prediction, you know, we've uh, spoken on the podcast numerous times about how we're seeing operating systems evolve, how we're seeing, you know, companies take different approaches in terms of, you know, Google integrating the touchscreen with the laptop and Apple, you know, kind of staying away from that, but all operating systems kind of becoming more appy and becoming more app store like recognizing, you know, the value and benefit of, of having, um, a more defined ability to push updates and to keep things current. And so I would just offer the prediction that we're going to, we're going to continue to see that evolution, you know, as a tech director, 
one of the things that this does make me ache for is better um, an, a better implementation, which hope, if you're a vendor and you're going to spam me with stuff, I mean, we're, we're on the road to this, uh, but it's, you know, mobile device management <clears throat> where we're able to, you know, individually manage devices and, and be able to verify, you know, patches and installs, but also just more Chrome-like management ability, you know, being able to have installs as we do in the Chrome console, you know, already randomized so that they're not going to have just a huge impact on our network and having a robust capability from the cloud to be able to manage those end user devices and not have to go physically touch every machine, which let's face it, if Kaspersky is not on Microsoft's list, then, and, and judging by some of the articles we've read and shared about, you know, how intrusive and, I think they were talking about it runs as close to the bare metal of the of the OS as, as software can. I mean, we're going to have to uninstall Kaspersky and go with another AV to be able to get patches for Windows 10 on every machine. And so that that's a huge thing. And it, on an, with an IT staff of of two that serves you know over 900 kids and 175 uh, faculty and staff, that's about what we're, where we're at. I mean, that that's substantial. So. Um, Anyway, it'll we'll we'll continue to to stay tuned. And uh, again, I'll drop in the the link to that Google Plus community. And if if there's other things that you all, as you listen to this show, you know, want to recommend, uh, especially with regard to things that you might be doing or your organization may have announced, you know, here's what we you know are going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, I think we really need to pay attention, especially you know, to, to what universities and, and large organizations are doing. Um, not to say that, you know, they're going to, they're going to know, you know, much, much better than what somebody who's running a small organization is, but it, it's important to, to watch that and not just what the headlines are in the news, which is kind of what we tend to focus on the most here, but you know, what kinds of, of press releases and emails to users are going out from institutions with, with big IT departments that right now. Absolutely. So, okay, uh, Wes, where should we go next? All right. Well, uh, I think um, I, I want to share just a, a couple fun AI uh, articles. When, and really, it's the first one is a video. This is uh, a TEDx talk uh, from November 21st of 2017, and it's entitled True Artificial Intelligence Will Change Everything by Jürgen Schmidhuber. And uh, I... Love my Apple TV at this point still, and and actually, what I one of the things that I love about it is YouTube. So that's a little ironic, right? Because that's Google's product, and I'm I'm hopeful that Apple will continue that good relationship. We've seen that get rocky with Amazon, right? In terms of Amazon breaking, you know, some of the function on its Fire devices, you know, for YouTube. But what we talk sometimes a lot, I probably do, of uh, you know the dark side of of surveillance and AI. One of the absolute best sides of of, you know, these more advanced algorithms that Google is building AI into everything, you know, is this ability to suggest more content that you like because you said you liked this. And, and YouTube even knows, right, how long we've watched things. And so on the Apple TV, I do have to tell our girls, please do not search, you know, for makeup videos and other things that's going to corrupt my my profile because unlike Netflix where you can choose what user, you know, with YouTube on Apple TV, it's just you're logged in with one. But anyway, I end up sometimes 
uh, you know, going through some videos. And so I got into a series of, of these this weekend. And this is the first time I've ever heard somebody say this about AI. And he, as well as Ray Kurzweil, and if you're not familiar with Kurzweil, he's, you know, the, the guy who's been talking about the singularity for a long time when computer intelligence is going to equal human intelligence. And then after that, you know, it exceeds it about a lot of things to include, you know, when the human genome was going to be mapped. And he, he hit the video, and I'll try to put it in here as well, that I watched for him. Um, his most recent book is called How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. You know, with ex- we're just not wired for exponential thought. We're wired for linear thought. You know, and so when the human genome was 1% mapped, people were like, oh, man, this is terrible. It's never going to, you know, this is useless. And he's like, no, we're almost done, <laughs> you know, because we're dealing with exponential change. Anyway, this was the quote from... Uh, Schmidt Huber, uh, a paraphrase, and he says, artificial intelligence is going to eventually colonize our solar system and our universe after it surpasses human brain capacity because it will seek resources beyond our biosphere, our Earth, where they are more plentiful. And so, wow, when, when you hear some of these futurists talk about really the inevitability of us becoming transhuman, of us not only having devices in our hands, but having things that will be implanted and, and put into our bodies, and the ways in which we're going to become more bionic in our cognitive capacity, but then the inevitability of the singularity. I mean, it, it, it's, it wasn't a Skynet moment, but it, it definitely gives you pause when, you, when you're hearing multiple, you know, very smart people talk about the inevitability of this. And maybe this is, well, I mean, Kurzweil has this prediction, I think 2029, and I should look that up, I, but it's something like that where he, where he's talking about singularity. Um, kind of wild. So I don't know, Jason, that, that we just went from really granular. Are you going to patch your machine to, Oh my gosh, is AI, you know, going out into the universe? Where are you with all that stuff? Are you, are you a Kurzweil uh, disciple or, or, or do you uh, not, not spend too much time uh, pondering such, I don't know, a bit esoteric and detached concepts. Um, I, I don't spend a, a ton of time here, um, but the thing that, that I keep going back to is, is twofold. The first one is that it it seems inevitable that a lot of things are going to change in regards to humans, and I just don't think that our systems are acknowledging that it may happen faster than, than we either intend or like. And so one of the things we have to be cautious of is that, Whatever perception you have of 2018 and what uh, human institutions have been impacted by technology in the past 25 years, that's likely to be a pretty low level compared to what is likely to happen in the next 10, 25, 50, 100 years. And and for better or for worse, Wes and I won't be around for this uh, uh, when the, the ultimate impact comes here, unless, of course, they you know, find a way to suck our um, you know cognizance into a computer somewhere so we could live on in a chat window. But the bottom line for me is that uh, things are going to change pretty dramatically. Now, where I, I, I tend to pause a bit is that where the connection between our first major discussion topic and this discussion topic is that if we find out that there's a major vulnerability 
of computers released in the last 20 years. And, you know, the worst hand wringing we have is that some Windows machines that probably should be updated are going to slow down up to 30%. That's nothing compared to when the computer's actually sitting in your brain, right? And that's where, you know, I, I am not a technology fear monger by any stretch of the imagination, but it does concern me a bit when I think about how uh, kind of almost accidentally we keep running into vulnerabilities, you know, and that's been increasing in the number and stature over the last decade or so, what happens when we start putting more direct interfaces with humans with those pieces. So um, I, you know, there's interesting stuff there. I think it's a very um, uh, uh, important topic to keep an eye on. And I think looking at futuristic looks of the future, uh, you know, futuristic looks of the future, Wes. Um, it's we look okay. At, this is unscripted, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely so. Proof. But the, the, the piece for me is that uh, institutions are going to change, right? And I, it's, in fact, I, I've, I've changed my tact about this in, in the last couple of years, that it used to be that, uh, you know, schools should prepare kids around this. I still believe that, but I think the way we prepare kids for this is not to, not to, um, to panic too much about it. I just think that good thinking is good thinking, right? And so if we can have students now that can adapt to the change later, the way we need to do that is to challenge them and, and, and have good rigorous courses and um, good studies and things like ethics and that sort of thing, I think are an important part of this process. So, um, you know, the, the future is going to be pretty interesting, probably a mix of scary and fascinating. And I hope I get to see at least some of the impact of, of these many changes that may occur. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the present and, and as well as the future. And I just add to this that um, I dropped in the video link. It's Ray Kurzweil at TEDx Silicon Valley, um, How to Create a Mind. Uh, highly recommend that. In fact, I would, I would just, I would just say everyone watch that, you know, add it. If you're not, by the way, using on YouTube, the watch later button, it's a playlist that every YouTube account has. And it's essential because there'll be things all the time that, you know, folks are going to throw at us that we don't have time to consume right then. Um, but the other articles that are related to this and, and it fits into what you said, Jason, with ethics and, and my geek, one of my geeks of the week with, with digital citizenship. Um, this is from the co-founder of DeepMind, which is Google's, you know, AI, um, company that has developed, well, the, um, AlphaGo, right, which 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 developed the computer that could beat the the world's Go champion, uh, Mustafa Suleiman. In 2018, AI will gain a moral compass, and that was a January 5th article in Wired magazine. And where the talk about the singularity and transhumanism can seem very inevitable, like this is going to happen, like having ethics in the code is not. I think it really is going to be an act of volition on the part of us as humans to make sure that, you know, ethics is built in. And one of the things that we've seen happen with AI in the last year or so, you know, Microsoft had a lot of negative press, and we may have even have that in the show notes at some point, when they released this chat bot that became a very misogynistic, pro-Nazi, you know, potty mouth. It was just, it was horrible. And that's what it was being fed. And so, you know, code um, and, and, and AI and these things tend to, machine learning, they tend to take on what's being fed into them. And so maybe depending upon how optimistic or pessimistic you are by human nature, you know, I'm not, I don't know, this is going to be a, a big challenge for us to navigate. Um, and so those are good articles to challenge kids with, right? Because digital citizenship involves digital literacy and it also involves 
just like citizenship that's non-digital, both both rights and responsibilities. And just like we have the responsibility to vote and the responsibility, hopefully, to, to be aware of issues in our local area and the constituent, the, uh, the people running for, for, for office and, you know, being informed voters. I think being informed netizens or, you know, citizens of the internet, uh, it's an important thing as well. And so while these conversations aren't taking the same front and center headline that, uh, Spectre and Meltdown and all this stuff are, are having. Um, I want to commend that to folks. And, uh, you know, I just, I think that we've, we've got to both raise up a generation that is not afraid of tech and not afraid of code. In fact, embraces the opportunity to, to create and be able to make in a virtual coding environment. Um, but we also need to be talking about the ethical aspects of this. Um, because that, you know, we're the ones that write the code, right? And how are we going to develop it? So anyway, en- enough of that. But that was a, a nice rabbit hole that I jumped into thanks to Google's AI built into YouTube. So yay, shout out to the Google Kool-Aid, which I don't have a drink tonight, but, you know, I frequently raise my glass high too. So there we go. Excellent. Okay, well, let's uh, maybe take this to a bit more practical. Uh, the other thing that's been going on this week that we previewed last week is the Computer Electronics Show uh, in Vegas is, is I think, starting to, to wind down or shutting down soon or maybe shutting down now. I did read a little earlier today they had a massive power outage in Vegas, which impacted the, the CES show, which I think is, actually, CES show would be redundant at the CES because I think it's uh, funny that here is probably a massive power suck of a conference because of the extraordinary number of electronics there. But um, there's a couple of highlights there, and you'll start to see some articles in the upcoming days if you read any technology journalism that talks about the most exciting things out of CES, and, and it'll be a lot about consumer electronics like televisions and that sort of thing. But the things that I would like to briefly focus on is the battle royale that appears to be occurring between Amazon's uh, Divine Miss A, and I will uh, seek to not uh, uh, mention her name since I know that that can uh, trigger her to jump into the conversation at your local homes, even when said via podcast, and also the Google Home, which is the alternative there. And it appears that Google, which, by the way, Google has has not really had a presence at, at CES the last couple of years. They have preferred to at least, you know, be quietly in the background there and allow other mostly hardware manufacturers dominate that particular event. And as it turns out, Google is in Vegas in a massive way this week, pushing Google Home, other Google devices that have the Google Assistant on it. And it appears that the battle royale for the intelligent personal assistants will be the Divine Miss A from Amazon and the Google Home Google Assistant. And that's super interesting to me, partly because this is the focus of some of my doctoral research work at the University of Montana. It's also interesting to me because it appears that the devices, which have, in my mind, very different usage points, um, could end up ruling the home. So first and foremost, I full disclosure, I have a Google Home and I have a um, an Echo. I can use the E word there, the Echo, which uh, both sit next to each other in my dining room, and I do utilize both regularly. Uh, I tend to think that, that one is better at certain things and the other is better at certain things, and I tend to go back and forth. And interestingly enough to me, my wife and our exchange student kiddo in our house have also figured out which of those two tend to be better 
better than the other, so we have kind of a best of both worlds thing. But it just it appeared that Amazon was going to like dominate this market with this, but Google is pushing forward hardcore to try to catch up a little ground and maybe in some ways uh, go past that. So I have a thought how this relates to schools, but before I jump into that, um, Wes, one of those platforms dominates your home, if my understanding is correct. Yes, we did add four uh, Google Home Minis and uh, would would actually love to put a, a few others. And I've dropped into the show notes a, a couple links that I've used to learn how to stretch that further from CNET in December of 2017, the complete list of Google Home commands so far. And then really fun this weekend, uh, a CNET article from January 3rd, I read how to use third-party actions on Google Home. And I started to use Todoist. And so one of the announcements that's happened is, you know, Amazon Alexa, and I know this more from you, Jason, has skills that you can connect and those you've said tend to be more about home automation and shopping and some things like that. So Google now has a similar thing with third party commands. And so we don't have to wait for the Google developers. Uh, app developers can go ahead and develop hooks into Google home and be able to do things. And so, uh, I can say, you know, to, to my, uh, my Google home, um, I would, I want it, uh, to use Todoist or open Todoist. And then another voice actually comes on, who's my Todoist assistant, and I can start adding tasks to that. And so, you know, we're building grocery lists, we're, um, you know, streaming music in different places, we're broadcasting, you know, hey, it's time for dinner and away from home. Hey, I'll be home in 10 minutes. You know, those are some of the cooler things. I did learn from one of our teachers at school that is actually one of our division assistants, um, the middle, the middle school, um, uh, assistant. Uh, her husband's really into uh, automation and they've got a feature with all these smart lights that they can say, hey, Miss A, emergency. And every light, then they've got a lot of them on their home, you know, turns on. Um, and then from uh, a shout out to Dr. Glenn Emerson, who teaches our, our middle division computer classes. Um, he is, um, he's doing quite a bit with, uh, with surveillance and things like that. But I didn't know you could play the radio. You can say a local radio station and just play the yes. radio. And so, you know, it's, this is fun, right? It's kind of cool to be participating in, in, in seeing this evolution of how AI becomes very practical. And my wife has, has asked on her wish list when we <clears throat> get through what could be a, a long financial month of, uh, of January just because of how December works out that <laughs> she'd like to, to have a, a home mini in her classroom. And so, you know, we're going to probably make that happen. It's going to be exciting to see the kids. I, I I can just, you know, clearly envision just a few short years ago, you know, when Siri started, our children in the back seat of the car trying to have a conversation with Siri. And it was impossible to get her to join more than one thing. But um, the one other thing I'd say about this that I've learned is that syntax, surprise, surprise, if you've ever done coding, syntax is really important. So, for instance, when I want to to stream Pandora, you know, I've 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 been able to create a word, which we're Lord of the Rings fans, so Rohan is the name of our you know speakers downstairs. <clears throat> In order to stream on Rohan, it can be important, you know, that I say, you know, I talk to Google and I say, you know, stream my Pandora station on Rohan. And similarly with Todoist, it was syntax was important. So anyway, it's an ongoing journey of learning, but um, have you had any more epiphanies about the classroom, Jason? You, and cause your recommendation was a big one. Why we went with, 
with Google Home versus Alexa, thinking about answering questions better. Right. Yeah, and, and I would I'd say that, that that's the, the classroom implication here for me is that right now in my mind, while uh, Alexa has a lot of cool parlor tricks and those skills can really do some pretty amazing things, right? It hooks up to a lot of, of hardware and software platforms and, and I think it's very extensible, right? That's a great part of the Amazon uh, uh, universe is that the Echo platform and the Divine Miss A are both really great at, at allowing you to add skills that make it that much more functional. But where my family utilizes these two platforms, we tend to go to the Google Home because it it, it, it has a more integration of the Google search in the same way that Siri also has that same integration. But I think it's interesting to me that Siri is completely absent from this conversation at the 2018 CES. And I'm concerned for, for a number of reasons that at this point that it's turned into a two-horse race instead of a four-horse race. And by four horses, I mean um, the... The horses uh, of the apocalypse. Well, yeah, that, that's true. The, the IPA horses of the apocalypse. But the fourth, the four competitors in my mind, I'm going to ignore Samsung's product because it's it's on one phone and apparently didn't work uh, very much out of the box. But the four that I think are, are the major competitors is Microsoft's Cortana, uh, Google's Google Assistant, uh, Amazon's Echo Platform, the Divine Miss A, and then um, Siri from Apple. And two of them have seemed to fall completely off the universe. I thought that, that Cortana would have greater impact due to the fact that it's available on every device and you can essentially replace your uh, uh, a voice assistant on particularly Android phones with Cortana. It doesn't seem to really be going anywhere even though it's available on Windows 10 and pretty easy to use. Uh, Siri, which was the earliest one out of the box here, uh, seems to have died on the vine, right? Like the other day I was actually looking for news on Siri as part of my, my academic research and they're touting things like soccer scores are available. And I'm like, well, hullabaloo, soccer scores. And it's like, if you have to tout that as a headline, you've probably lost the race, right? And so for me, assuming Google Home Surge is real and they continue to push, 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 push to be competitive uh, in that arena, I think that it's, it's down to really, really two products. Back to CES and smart assistants, I, I don't have the, the link in the show notes, but I did see Google came out with something similar to the Amazon show, right? So Amazon has a device with a screen, and so Google is responding with something similar. You know, and I'd echo your your sentiments here. It's pretty surprising to see how quickly, apparently, they've pulled ahead. And with exponential change in the ways that these things build on each other, I mean, you just wonder if Microsoft and Apple are going to be able to keep up. I mean, Apple, to their credit, usually, you know, they, they may be a little late to a particular product area if they didn't define it and start it as they have in many cases, but then they'll, they'll, they'll leapfrog ahead and just do really well with that. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I put my eggs in the Google basket on this one. And it's, it's interesting that Amazon and Google, of course, have such different platforms, which relates to actually to surveillance and to tracking and other things that, you know, we may, we've talked about before and we'll, we'll talk about in the future. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting day. And I, I'm, I, for the first time at CES, I am more focused at this time on, like not TVs, not just processors, not, not litzy tech. It's really what the tech can do in the smart assistant arena. I think that's, that's what I'm, if they come out with a, with a, you know, bone low, which that's the wrong way to say it. If, if they come down with a super cheap, you know, 65 inch, 75 inch, 80 inch television, of course that would be of great, you know, personal interest and school interest, but 
it's it's uh you know not how fast the processors are uh it's catching my attention it's it's this stuff and, and tracking what happens so it's fun to fun to talk to people who are into this and be able to you know get some new tricks then you can go home and try them on your own device see if they work yep there you go and i would add one other thing um related to this as well um you you should get to know the power of those platforms. Uh, like if you, whichever one you have on your phone, oh play gosh. around with it. You know, find voice, out what voice input, voice input. I mean, I was sitting in the car as the girls were shopping, and I was you know using my iPad with with the app Hop. That's my new favorite you know email app. It makes it like text messages, and especially you're clearing out lots of messages. It's just great. But I'm dictating, and I'm so much more efficient, right? And this is a shift that. Not everybody is making yet. And I just don't think we have our heads around how big this is in terms of, you know, from the keyboard to the, the touch interface, you know, to the, the speaking. I cut you off, but I would just, I, I totally agree. It's we, we experiencing it and tasting this and using it. Um, it's a big, this is a big shift. This is not a small thing, I think, with the, yep. with the home assistants. Absolutely. And then uh, a couple of the quick things related to this. Uh, there's a great article in Recode today that talks about that if CES is any indicator of where things are going, expect to talk to your devices more. And they were kind of talking about the Amazon versus Google battle royale and how that's supposed to kind of increase the, those uh, uh, interactions with our devices. But I think voice interaction is going to be a pretty big deal with these devices. And then one other CES piece of business is that the other thing I thought Wes would be interested in, uh, Samsung and Razer. Razer is a manufacturer of gaming hardware, um, computers, laptops, desktops. They have recently announced an Android phone, supposedly a pretty nice Android phone, but they also are pairing up with Samsung to offer what appears to be the kind of holy grail of mobile phone, which is that they have a, a, a Razer phone that plugs into a laptop shell and turns turns the uh, uh, otherwise dumb laptop screen and keyboard into a, a laptop-like experience. So taking the power of the Razer phone, which my understanding is fairly decent hardware, and turning it into a laptop-like experience, not unlike what Windows 10 can do, Windows 10 Mobile, which is on almost no devices now and, and hasn't had a release in, in some time, you are able to plug that into a specialized piece of hardware to turn that into a full desktop experience. That's something that Razer is working on with Samsung utilizing the Android operating system. So interesting development there. And I know, Wes, you had talked about that that the, the folks you or one of the, the gentlemen you work with uh, has a Windows 10 phone that does precisely that. So that seems to be a yeah. model that seems to be a winner. Did did use it. He switched back to Android. But yeah, that, that's impressive. I'll do a quick shout out to an article and then I'd love if you wouldn't mind just to talk briefly about uh, some of your blockchain articles because there were and there was some of the Bitcoin. Another thing we can't be ignoring is cyber currency, right? I, I definitely think there's a there's a bubble here and we're going to, you know, right. see some uh, implications of that. But the quick shout out is to a CNN editorial op ed by Delaney Rushton. And she was the producer of a movie called Screenagers. Um, which in this article was on CNN, December 22nd, 2017. Um, the title is called Smartphones Aren't a Smart Choice in Middle School. And she's arguing that all the phones should be put away. Just like France, we should follow their lead and just put all the phones away in school because you know what? They just distract us. They take us away from, you know, what we're really there to do, which is sit down, shut up and stop, you know, actively engaging, passively consume. No, I'm, I'm being rather, you know, harsh here, but... I mean, it, it, 
we need to respond to this. And Jason, I think seriously, we should, we could talk to Beth, we could talk to others. Like, why can't we write op-eds? I, I don't know though they'll, they'll be published by CNN, but we should be trying to really influence the culture at a broader level when it comes to this conversation, because this is just not, I mean, it's, it's as dumb as saying, yeah, let's, let's address immigration with walls and just, I mean, some of the completely asinine things that I'm being political here um, that we hear, you know, people talking about it's, we have got to help kids learn how to use their devices and navigate the world, not yeah. pretend like we can make, you know, middle school more like more like a prison and you know just just lock all the devices away so i'm right. i'm absolutely agreeing that they're just they're distracting they're powerful you know they can they can curtail our relationships they can do all of these things but the point is you know let's let's equip each other uh, and ourselves with skills to deal with this and simply banning it is not the best way to do that if we want to you know, prepare kids to be empowered and make independent choices in the future. Well, and many people know that, that I speak on this issue quite a bit, by the way. And and as a reminder, both Wes and I are able to be brought into your district conference to speak, but this is a very popular presentation that I do about digital distraction. And um, I could not be more interested in this topic as I do think that phones are terribly distracting. You use all sorts of things into the learning environment and into your personal life, right? Because they're, they're amazingly powerful. But I'd be the last person on earth to say that the response to that research, which seems to be very persuasive, is that we should ban those devices, right? For precisely what Dr. Fryer says, which is that we need to be teaching kids how to do that, which means sometimes brute force instruction with students, right? That it's time to put the phone away or for this exercise, your phone is unnecessary. Or it's, I don't care what you do right now. For the next six minutes, surf to your heart's content on your phone because who cares, right? That's an important thing. Use your tools, right? We're going to do this project. I want you to use your resources. You know, if you've got access to bring somebody else in, to access an expert, to bring other information. I mean, yeah, it's just uh, we need the time to process exponential change in what's going on. And and I think that while we would agree with a lot of these sort of inputs, if we want to have a debate, you know, sort of structure, you've got observations before you present your case and your advantages, you know, a lot of her observations about the power of smartphones and what it's doing, I think we would both be in in complete agreement with to say yes, um, you know, but but her plan is is not the right one. So, right, right. uh, Go ahead. um, and I just totally forgot I was going to say it was something very profound and important. Um, Block, blockchain. You want to let's talk just briefly about uh, sure. some cryptocurrency and then we probably better geek of the weekend. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, one thing that to keep in mind, you're probably hearing a lot about cryptocurrency and the market is exploding and they're starting to become more formal markets and and interesting that, that those things are, are happening. But please understand, and, and, and to be clear, I barely understand my, this myself, but the stuff behind cryptocurrency is a little more complex than it's just an online dollar bill, right? It's it, There's a lot more going on there than it's a currency, right? And one of the things that's behind that is blockchain. And I could not even begin to to describe blockchain to you in a way that a, 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 a person that is not already basically in 
somewhat cahoots with this information can, can understand, but it's a very complex way of tracking events over time and releasing events based on events. And uh, that's the best way I could describe it without getting too much in the weeds. But yesterday, the Kodak company announced that it was going to move towards a blockchain um, thing, right? I'll talk about what the thing is in a second. And the first thing that happened was that a bunch of folks talked about how Kodak was getting into crypto currency. And that headline is a bit misleading because that's not exactly what's occurring. But instead, they're working on a product that can allow you to manage the digital rights of media utilizing blockchain. So in other words, by accessing and, and, and utilizing otherwise protected media, and we talk quite a bit about ethics and copyright and teaching digital citizenship to kids, this would be a way of being able to enforce that in a meaningful way, utilizing blockchain. And so if you are tend to be on the lighter side of nerd and you these cryptocurrency is still unclear to you, definitely start to dig in this a little bit because a lot of people say that that know what they're talking about that that cryptocurrency broadly but more importantly underneath that blockchain could change the world. These are the kind of things that's talking about. So very exciting stuff going on. And I'm glad to see that Kodak, which is a company that was basically eliminated by technology advances, seems to be finding a way to stay relevant in the industry they created. Absolutely. And my, my two articles to, to quickly shout out here, uh, New York Times, uh, January 4th, rise of Bitcoin competitor Ripple creates wealth to rival Zuckerberg. And so Ripple is another cryptocurrency. Sometimes people just hear Bitcoin and think that's all we're talking about. Uh, but Chris Larson, who is a co-founder of Ripple, because of this incredible bubble and spike in interest, and a lot of this is being driven actually, interestingly, by South Korea and, and investors there. Uh, briefly last Thursday, he was worth more than $59 billion, according to records from Forbes, and it would have briefly vaulted Mr. Larson ahead of Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg uh, into fifth place on the Forbes list. Now, of course, if he was to try and sell a lot of that ripple, as I think the article points out, probably that, you know, value is going to drop and, you know, we've got paper costs. But this is an absolute gold mine that's happening right now in our lifetimes. We hear the 1849ers that went to California, you know, I mean, there were folks taking risks and, and doing things. And and actually, a lot of these folks are in college dormitories. And so my next article is from Quartz on January 6th, The Secret Lives of Students Who Mine Cryptocurrency in Their Dorm Rooms. And it's a fascinating look into how, you know, students that are geeky and, you know, maybe their computer science uh, kids have, have figured out, hey, part of my tuition is unlimited electricity. And that is probably the number one operational cost for running some kind of a cryptocurrency uh, mining operation. And so some of these kids have made a lot of money. One of them had made it even into the six digits. He'd put all of his stuff into Mount Gox, which got hacked, and he lost all of it. I mean, can you imagine this happening to you in college? You've made six figures, and then somebody hacks your bank, and you've lost it all? I mean, this is just absolutely Wild West stuff. Um, and we've said this before on the show. Hey, what a great writing prompt for your kids, right? If you're just having them write an essay, uh, you know, to, to, uh, you know, practice some writing skills or maybe to, to do a persuasive. Should we get into cryptocurrency or not? <clears throat> but on the benefit, um, one of the things it's saying is that a generation or at least more people in the current generation of college students are moving into the workforce with a very, 
you know, clear, clearer than probably Jason or I have understanding of the blockchain of cryptocurrency. Um, it depends, you know, we're not, we're not futurists for your speculative uh, stock investments here, but the blockchain is a big deal and it's being implemented in a lot of places. Someone was telling me this week about a startup and I don't have this article, but <clears throat> somebody's looking at medical records and the ways in which the blockchain is able to document every single exchange that happens with that information is potentially huge. And so anyway, I thought those were pretty interesting articles and you know, the dorm rooms tend to be areas that administration, you know, gives a lot of free reign to kids. And so they're really not, apparently cracking down on, on this kind of thing, but kids, and, and there's even a picture where they had a, a homegrown, you know, getting dryer hoses and, and hooking it up you know, to the fans because of all the heat that's being generated from these computers, you know, running in their dorm rooms, you know, mining these cryptocurrencies. And so it's a, a new DIY culture. Who would have thought that we'd have, you know, kids that didn't have to go travel across the country to, you know, go into some uh, mine and put their bodies at physical peril, but they could, you know, hook up some uh, computers, which interestingly with graphics cards are, you know, play a role in that as far as the processing speed. And they're making lots of money, far more than I think we have probably either made ourselves, but they're also making it and losing it. So shall we geek of the week to wrap it up? Yeah, I, and I'll do mine quickly like, because it's actually one that I, I talked about um, earlier on in, in the run of our show, only because it, it's something that, that I, I, I'm using nearly every day now. But for those of you that are on the, again, the geekier side of the world and, and, and uh, tend to do things like you know, delete operating systems and install new operating systems on machines, I'm having the best time with Neverware is Cloud Ready, which is a Chromium OS implementation, and it essentially allows you to take a Mac or PC, and they have over 200 models that they, they officially support, and hundreds of which where the, the software works just great where they don't, and it can effectively allow you to create a Chromium OS, not Chrome OS, but Chromium OS, the open source version of Chrome um, uh, uh, OS device. It's not quite as premium as modern day Chrome OS devices because, for example, Android apps aren't implemented there. But I took an older workstation at work that has a fast older chip in it and 16 gigabytes of RAM. So uh, uh, six or seven years ago, this machine was a top-notch machine, and it's something that I, I bought for dirt cheap um, uh, used. And I installed the the Cloud Ready product on there, and I've been using it as my daily driver at work. I just love the simplicity of Chrome OS that I've been able to install on there. And it's fast, and I've got it with a big three-monitor desktop setup, and it's been really quite fabulous, and I, and I really like it. So if you are you know, prone to do things like take an old Windows machine, for example, delete the operating system and install something new, uh, Neverware's Cloud Ready is just a really amazing product and worth your time and, and, and at least your attention resources. Awesome. And uh, I've got two. Uh, first one's kind of quick, a new website that I've been wanting to do for about three years. And finally, it's launched and it'll be, you know, taking some some other forms. But it's called Digital Citizenship Conversations and it's at digsit.us. And so our school is uh, asking teachers to take a couple videos during advisory time in middle and high school before the end of April and talk about some of those videos. And so there's there's a, there's going to be, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 
<clears throat> that are available by the end of the month. There's obviously tons of curriculum out there. You know, we're not out to recreate common sense media and these other very robust digital citizenship curriculums. But what we are wanting to do is catalyze conversation, spark conversation and empower our teachers to not say, hey, that's that's the computer teacher's responsibility down the hall. Now, this is something we all need to be talking about. And there are nine different areas of digital citizenship that we've brainstormed together and, and really focus in on um, ethics, sharing, safety, student voice, privacy, digital footprint, information literacy, security, parenting, wellness, copyright, and attribution. I think that's actually 10 because uh, I added sharing in there and it wasn't on our original. But shout out to that. And I uh, would love to have your feedback. Um, each one of those videos has a quick form that you can fill out just to give feedback. And that's you know part of what we're going to do is iterate on what we do next year uh, based on, on feedback. Um, it's also an opportunity, by the way, in the contribute link. Because if you're teaching, uh, especially older students, pre-service teachers, perhaps, um, there's some great articles that we need to have short videos about. We've got a lot of even elementary kids playing <clears throat> a game called Roblox, but there are there's tons of ads on Roblox. Unlike Minecraft, it's a virtual world, you know, for building and, and interactive, uh, you know, gameplay, and so a whole lot to wrap our heads around. And while there's great digital curriculum out there, um, there's important uh, topics and things like that that need to be addressed. And we can not only, you know, share those videos and engage in conversations with others, <clears throat> but there's chances perhaps if we're interested ourselves or with our students to have them create videos that can become conversation starters in themselves. And so my last thing is the Firefox Quantum Browser. Uh, Jason, have you installed that and played with that yet? I have, yeah. And I've, I, I've been a, a, a minor user of it since it's, it's beta, late betas uh, uh, early in the fall. And man, what a massive leap forward for Firefox. Yeah, and what uh, they were saying on Security Now tonight was when you look at the average page load time, it's seven point something seconds, both between Chrome and Firefox. But when you turn incognito mode on, Chrome does not actually turn off all the tracking, which you kind of might think, well, what's incognito mode? And one of the people they cited said that's really the Achilles heel, right? Because Google is based upon, you know, tracking and advertising. But if you turn that off in the new Firefox Quantum, it's a 50% speed increase. And wow. you can also go into the settings, and that's what I have a little screenshot of there, and I'll, I'll tweet that and put that in the show notes, that you can always turn tracking protection on, and that is going to, in, in you know, at least some cases, double the speed at which pages are loading. And, of course, this has implications for advertisers and folks that are making their money based off your page views, et cetera. Uh, but on a privacy and security note, um, I think it's important for us to talk about and, you know, for us to at least if we're in the realm of educational technology and and one of those people at our schools and in our <clears throat> in our families and networks who people turn to and talk about. I mean, we it, it would behoove us to be dabbling in this and and. And, and maybe not to just be locked in. I've been really locked into Chrome for a long time. And, you know, Chrome is going to respond to this too. It's, it's, it's cat and mouse, but it's a huge step forward. And if you think about doubling your uh, browsing speed, I think that's something that should get our attention. So check that out. There it is. Well, Wes, where can the masses find you on the internets? 
Well, I continue to tweet at W Fryer, and I am continuing to also uh, blog every once in a while at speedofcreativity.org. As I mentioned, the digsit.us is a new web project, and that is something that I'll be continuing to develop a lot here in the next couple weeks, as well as more going going forward. So how about you, Jason? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And for those of you that are viewing this podcast uh, the day or two after we record this, this Friday, so this will be Friday the 12th, is the end of early bird pricing for the NCC conference, February 14th to 16th in fabulous Seattle, Washington. Uh, substantial savings if you register this Friday or before. And again, we can't be more excited for our keynote speaker, Dan Rather, and the many sessions, including several for me and my guest, Nelly, the Tech Savvy Teachers and Residents at the NCCE. So this party here, though, the one we're talking about right now, this is the EdTech Situation Room, a weekly podcast where Wes and I talk about the week's technology news with an educational focus. You can find us live um, on our website, edtechsr.com, links there, or you can find us on Twitter at edtechsr, and we are at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, or 3 a.m. UTC. Looked up before the show started tonight. So if you happen to be a UTC person and want to get up in the middle of the night in Greenwich, 3 a.m. is where you can see us broadcast live. Or you can find the audio version of the podcast wherever finer uh, podcasts are aggregated, which includes places like Stitcher, the iTunes Podcast Store, uh, Spotify has the EdTech Situation Room, and you can ask your Google Home to play the latest edition of the EdTech Situation Room. If not, live is great, too, and we look forward to engaging with you. Um, good morning, good day, good evening. Stay savvy, stay safe, and let's be careful out there, kids. Adios, amigos.